I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of tests. Uh, if you were to go and look at my grades in high school, you would uh, quickly come to that conclusion that I'm not a big fan uh, of tests. Um, still, aren't, still not till this day, but as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate tests, good tests. Tests that uh, have a goal in mind. Tests that um, um, reveal, reveal something. I've come to appreciate tests especially because I know that God gives tests. He tests his, his people. He says in Psalm 11 and 5, uh, the psalmist says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In First Chronicles 29 and 17, uh, the writer says, I know my God. He says, I know my God, and this is what I know of him, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. God tests his people. And like all good tests, tests, God's tests are meant to reveal something. His tests have a purpose in mind. God is after the hearts of his people. He wants to know where their allegiances lie. But not only is it about their allegiance, his tests are about trust. They are about obedience. So if Pastor to- as Pastor Tony said last week, the wilderness is about the children of Israel learning to walk with their God, the God who had rescued them out of Egypt, then it is easy to understand that there would be tests to see if what they were learning or what they were being taught was getting through to them. During last week's sermon, we learned that the children of Israel, after three days in the wilderness, had run out of water, or at least their supplies were running low, and they grumbled against Moses and, and wondered what Moses and, and demanded that Moses provide water for them. Despite their grumbling, God miraculously turned the bitter waters that they had found at Marah, they, they, he turned them that water sweet so that it satisfied their thirst. Would, would God's people learn that he could be trusted. Our text this morning answers that very question. God is going to test his people. That's what he tells us is the point of our text in Exodus 16 and verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Brothers and sisters, you do understand, I hope you will, you will come to the conclusion that God providing manna from heaven for his people was not ultimately about their stomachs or their need for food, but it was about their hearts and their need for Jesus. God was testing their hearts. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. And think about your various life circumstances, the, the places where you find yourself in. Perhaps they're, they're difficult. Think about that for a second, that many of your life circumstances and situations are not necessarily about what they appear to be. They are about your heart. They are about you and Jesus. It's about whether or not you believe his word. It's not about your job. It's it's not about the argument. It's not about the money. It's not about the sickness. It's not about the promotion. Whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself in, good or bad, God may be using it to test you. He was testing Israel. Would Israel pass the test? That's what we'll find out this morning. Their journey, Israel's journey into the wilderness is is now a month in. The excitement surrounding their victory at the Red Sea had no doubt worn off. The bitter waters turned sweet at Marah was no longer front page news. It was no longer trending on Twitter. They were were settling into life. It it was hot in the desert. They they were on the move and and life in the wilderness was, was starting to get old. They'd come down off the mountaintop. But I don't necessarily think that they were in the valley. I, I, I think that they were actually in the plain. Life as they, they knew it in many respects had settled down into routine. Wake up in the morning, break down camp, hike through the hot sun, set up camp, go to sleep, and repeat the same routine day after day after day. Israel, they were dealing with their new ordinary life. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that that is where we spend the bulk of our lives? In the ordinary? In the mundane We live our lives in the mundane, in the ordinary. We we don't typically jump from mountaintop to mountaintop experience. Nor do we jump from valley to valley experience. It's also rare, rare that we go from the mountaintop to the valley or from the valley to the mountaintop. Most of our lives are lived walking along the plain. Not too high and not too low, just living out the ordinary, mundane details of our lives. And if this is where we spend the bulk of our lives, shouldn't we learn how to live there? How did Israel do with this new life, this new ordinary life, uh, a life that was free from From bondage in Egypt, they were free, but it was ordinary. Here's what they did. They complained. (laughs) They complained. Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation 
of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and and ate bread to to the full, for, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, now I'm not sure if there are degrees to complaining, but if there are, the complaint from the Israelites here is among the worst. It's among the worst for several reasons, but firstly, it's among the, the worst because their complaint is irrational. It's irrational. Logically, it doesn't make sense. They look at their current situation and, 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 and conclude that they were better off in Egypt. But not only that, they go as far as to say that they would have been better off being killed in Egypt by God's hand under the plagues that he ran, rained down on Egypt than languishing alive here in the desert. Boiled down, here's what they said. Slavery in Egypt is better than freedom in the desert. It's irrational. It's irrational. Their their way of coping with the monotony in the desert was to focus on what they were lacking and turn to what they assumed was better. They started to recall uh, the meat pots. (laughs) <laughs> and, and the bread that they enjoyed in Egypt. They talked about how they remember their stomachs being full. They, they reminisced about the times when they, when they were, were full after they ate a, a meal. But somehow, strangely, they forgot about the harsh treatment they endured in Egypt. The killing of their sons. The brick making without straw. Somehow they didn't recall their tears and their their cry for relief from their bondage in Egypt. Israel suffered from what we tend to all suffer from, revisionist history. We love to recall the good old days. We reminisce about what used to be and, 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 and the fun we had. Remember all the pleasures, the good things. Funny how we only remember the good things, especially when we are in the midst of difficulty. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters, reminiscing. Reminiscing isn't bad, but but you see the problem is, is that when we start reminiscing, we often start exaggerating about the good times. I think this is a trick of the enemy. We make it sound better than it actually was. The children of Israel did not have a good life in Egypt. (laughs) Their stomachs weren't always full. They weren't eating meat every day. They were exaggerating. They were thinking it better than it was. Oh, we shouldn't be too quick to judge the children of Israel. Our lives often exhibit the same behavior. 
The Christian life gets difficult. And you start remembering what it was like not to be a Christian. But it's only the good times, you recall. (laughs) You forget all the trouble your life of sin brought you. You start making things sound better than they actually were. Brothers and sisters, believe you me, the the, the, the allures and the temptations and the pull of former pleasures, it, it, it at times seems impossible to resist, especially when you see people enjoying what you used to enjoy. And I know those pleasures will satisfy for a moment, but they're only temporary. Those pleasures are meant to destroy. Pharaoh didn't have Egypt's best, uh, Israel's best interest in mind when he was feeding them. He wanted to feed them to, to, to fulfill his own agendas. He didn't care about, about them. Oh, you think you were better off with your old way of life, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you were not. Temptation, this temptation plagued the early church, threatened the faith of the Galatians. The Galatians were were tempted to run back to their old way of life when things got difficult. They started listening to the false teachers. Paul says in Galatians 4, 8 and 9, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? And he goes on to say in Galatians 5 and 1, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Galatians were tempted to go back to a life of slavery. They forgot what it was like. Oh, yes, the pull is real. But remember, brothers and sisters, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. No pleasures that the world offers are better than the riches that you have in Christ Jesus. When you dwell on what you had in Egypt, you are returning to a life of bondage instead of living in the freedom that was wrought for you. Oh, the, the Israelites had it wrong. Slavery is not better than freedom. Their complaint was irrational. But their, their complaint was also among the worst because It accused God of wrongdoing. That's why it was of the worst kind. It accused him of wrongdoing. That is what Moses says to them after he listens to their grumbling. Moses, we we had meat pots and, and bread in Egypt. Feed us. Moses says in verse 7 and 8, he says, who are we? Moses and Aaron, who are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. 
the people have been complaining to Moses and Aaron about their uh, current situation, and, and they thought their issue was with them. But in fact, Moses reminds them that their complaint was against God. When you and I complain about the various situations in our lives, when when we look at our lives and think we had it better in days gone by, we are questioning God's plan and purposes for our lives. And what we are doing is accusing him of wrongdoing. If you are unhappy with where you are in your life, remember that it is God who has brought you to that place. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your husband. It's not about your boss or your parents. You are not complaining to your pastors or your friends. You are grumbling against the Lord. We know that it is God who orders our steps. It is his plans and purposes that are being worked out in your life. And to rail, to complain, to grumble against the plans and the purposes for your life that God has for you is to think you know better than God. You don't, brothers and sisters. Wherever he has you, he brought you there. It was of the worst kind, this complaining. It it, it showed, it showed that it was irrational. It accused God of wrongdoing, but, but it was also of the worst kind because it showed Israel's ungratefulness. When Israel decides that they are going to complain and to covet the pleasures they had in Egypt, they are demonstrating how ungrateful they are for all that the Lord has done for them. God was not obligated to rescue them from Egypt, nor to provide for them or to continue walking with them. Once he rescued them, he could have sent them on their way and let them go about their business, fending for themselves. For Israel to complain about their situation in the wilderness was for them to think that they deserve to be rescued from Egypt. I deserve this, Lord. They had the right to demand from Moses that their needs be met. When Israel complained, it revealed their ungrateful hearts. And they were ungrateful. You know why? Because they were no longer thankful. Here's the thing. You can't complain and be thankful at the same time. You are either thankful or you're complaining. (laughs) And therefore, in reality, you are either in the will of God or you're out of the will of God. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18 says. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Brother Bob, right? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
those who are walking in the will of God, they don't grumble. They don't complain. When a difficult circumstance arises, they default, their default response is not to complain, but it is to give thanks. You may ask, well, how is that possible? I don't see how that is even possible. Can you do that? Well, you start by setting your mind on things that are above. It's, it's a matter of thinking on those things that are lovely and praiseworthy. You begin to consider all the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. You know, brothers and sisters, when you stop and contemplate it for a moment and begin to think of all that the Lord has done for you, just to recall in your mind his numerous blessings, where he has brought you to at this place, you you know what you discover? You don't have any time to complain. And then you think, you're almost embarrassed about how much complaining you do do. Because the Lord is good. He has done so much for us. Oh, Israel had stopped being thankful. Sure, they sang the praises of, of God as they crossed the Red Sea. But the Bible doesn't record any thanksgiving they offered at the bitter waters made sweet at Marah. When we stop giving thanks, we easily start complaining. Israel, as they had started on this life of freedom, they began to complain when they should have been given thanks. They had yet to learn the lesson. God provides, but God wasn't through teaching them. <laughs> the God that we serve, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God of the Israelites is a gracious and merciful and compassionate God. And thankfully, our grumbling and and our complaining doesn't cancel his grace and his mercy out. God's people, because of their complaining, deserve punishment. But God showed Israel mercy and grace. God comes to Moses and he comes to Aaron and he tells them that he has heard the grumbling of his people. And he is going to provide food for them. And and in the evening, they would receive a quail. And, And in the morning when they woke up, they would receive bread. God had made provision to meet their their needs. Each day, they were to gather enough for their household, exactly what they needed for that day. They were to not keep keep any of it for the next day, for God would provide a new and fresh portion for them every morning. But they needed to trust his word. You know what God was teaching his people in the wilderness? That he is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. 
You, you wonder. We, we say that all the time. The Lord provides or the Lord has provided or, or I know that the Lord will provide. But you ever stop to think what it means that the Lord provides? What do we mean by that? Well, when we say that the Lord provides, we mean that God is the source of our provision. Oh, this is so important to remember. Our provision is not ultimately from our jobs or the money that we make. God is the source of all that we have and enjoy. He's the source. Israel needed to know that when they ate by those meat pots in Egypt, it wasn't Pharaoh that was providing for them. God was making provision for them. It was God who was taking care of them. He was providing the sustenance that they needed. Brothers and sisters, any enjoyment, any good things in creation is a gift of God. He is the source of all good. When the birds of the air eat, it is God who provides their food. That's what it tells us, the Bible tells us in Matthew 6. When unbelievers enjoy provision, God is the source of it. Israel made the mistake in thinking that their provision came from earthly rulers and sources. God says, no, no, Israel, I am going to rain down bread from heaven miraculously so that you are clear who your provider is. That's what he says in Exodus 16 and 6. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, at evening, here's what you will know, Israel. You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see his glory. Oh, when, it, when we say that the Lord provides, it means that he is the source. He is the source of our provision. All good and perfect gifts come from him. It also means that God meets our needs. He meets our needs. Each morning, the children of Israel woke up. They were met with fresh bread from heaven to meet their physical need to eat. While they were in the wilderness, there would not be a morning. Forty years in the wilderness, there would not be a morning that they woke up where there wasn't fresh bread for them. He would sustain this until they reached the promised land. Their daily needs met every single morning. Well, that's what it means for God to provide. He meets their needs. This is a testimony of God's people throughout Scripture. God's people know him to be a provider because they experience his provision. Abraham knew the provision of God. Jacob and, and Joseph knew it. David experienced God's provision, and so did the Apostle Paul. This is what he's talking about when he gets to the end of Philippians chapter 4. He knows what it is to abound, and he knows what it is to be made low. He's reflecting on the gift that the Philippian church had given to them. And he gets to the end and he says this, Philippians 4.19, And my God 
will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's the testimony of God's people that he provides and he meets our needs. Can, can you testify to that this morning? The Lord meets your, your needs. God's God to provide means that he is the source of our provision. He meets our needs. But lastly, God's provision satisfies. That's what it means for God to provide. It's, he, he satisfies our needs, satisfies it. No one who ate the manna God provided in the wilderness could complain that it wasn't enough. In verse 21, the writer says that each gathered as much as he or she could eat. The food they were supplied with was satisfying. Any hunger that they experienced when they awoke that morning was no longer there after they ate the manna that God had provided. And guess what? It wasn't just some flaky paper, no-taste wafer that the Lord provided tells us that it was sweet. The provision that he provided was satisfyingly sweet to their stomachs. It was a meal they could enjoy. You know, in a culture of excess, satisfaction or the biblical word contentment doesn't seem to be in our vocabulary. It was John Paul Getty, who is uh, the oil tycoon who uh, amassed a large fortune, who was no, known for uh, um, gathering a lot of money and wanting to be rich. He was considered one, once considered the, the richest man in the world. And, and John Paul, Paul Getty was asked one time, Sir, sir. How much is enough? And John Paul Getty responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's the culture that we live in. Satisfaction doesn't, doesn't seem to be in our vocabulary. God wanted his people to know that what he provided for his people was enough. Take as much as you can eat, but don't save any for tomorrow. I will supply and satisfy your needs every day. God was teaching them about his provision, about how he provides, that he provides for their needs that, that he is the source of their provision and that, and that he, he satisfies. But remember, brothers and sisters, the manna provided in the wilderness was not just about God's people's stomachs. It was about their hearts. It was about their hearts. 
When we say that God provides, yes, we have in mind that he, he meets our daily physical needs. He, he provides for us physically. But ultimately, when we say God provides, it means he provides for our spiritual needs. The bread from heaven in the wilderness was pointing to the bread from heaven that would come and satisfy the hunger of our souls. Oh, that's what Jesus says. He looks back into the wilderness at the manna and says this in John chapter 6 in verse 32 and 35. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread. And fish. And the people are amazed at this miracle that he has performed. They come searching for Jesus, looking for more bread. And Jesus says to them in verse 32 Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This, This was the point of the manna in the wilderness. God was going to provide his son the true bread from heaven to satisfy the hungry souls of his people. Brothers and sisters, the bread of heaven has come. Our king has come, we sang. He is the the bread of life. You do realize that as Christians... Each morning, fresh manna arrives. But in reality, you know what? We shouldn't call it manna. Manna in Hebrew means, what is it? that's, That's what the people, that's what the Israelites did in the wilderness when they woke up and they saw this weird, flaky substance on the ground. They said, what is it? That's why it's called manna. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wonder what we wake up to every morning. We don't have to, we, we, we know the bread that we receive. We know who awaits us each morning. Jesus awaits us every morning. In the morning we sing, when I rise, what do we want? Give me Jesus. Oh, you may ask, you may ask, well, how? How, how, how do I get this every morning? Should I be coming down and, and looking on my carpet or looking on the grass outside for this flaky, uh, weird substance? Is that how I, I get Jesus every day? No. Jesus says to Satan in the wilderness, in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone but by every word of God. God provides the bread of heaven, Jesus, through his word. 
That's how we, that's how we, how we wake up and get bread every morning. In his word. And, and you know what? The provision of God's word, you know what it does? It meets our needs. It meets our need. Brothers and sisters, you and I need the word. We need it. It's, it's how we grow. It's, it's, it's the word that helps us to fight temptations and, and despair and, and discouragement and, and anxiety and, and fear and, and discontentment and loneliness and sin. It's the word of God that does that. Do I need to go on? If you are a Christian this morning, you need the word every day. First Peter 2.2 says that we ought to long for it. Like the milk that, uh, that newborn infants long for. Each day, each day you and I awake. The word of God awaits us with what we need for that day. You know, we think we know what we need every day. We assume that we know what we need, what we ought to pursue that day. But only God knows what we need. He says, come to my word every morning and feast, and I will give you what you need. You ever, you ever spend time in the word and devotions one morning, just reading God's word? And later on that day, in a difficult situation, the word that you read that morning comes to your mind? You think that was an accident? <laughs> no, brothers, that's not coincidence. The Lord provided you with the word that you needed that day. Oh, God was providing for your need. His word, it meets your need. And you know what else his provision does? Provision of his word satisfies our soul, satisfies our soul. His word, brothers and sisters, is enough. We, we don't need to look for signs and wonders. His word satisfies the souls. Jesus said that he is the bread of life, and, and those who come to him shall never hunger. Peter tells us this in his letter. You do know that it was Peter, along with James and John, who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus transfigured and saw him in all of his glory. It was amazing. He, he says that he heard from heaven God say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter was there on the Mount. He saw a sign. He saw a wonder. But you know what Peter says? In 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What Peter is saying is that what we have, what we behold in our hands every morning is enough for us. It satisfies our soul. And when we long for the word and when we see that it is satisfying, when we, when we discover that, we see it then as sweet. 
And we can, we can recall like David in Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. The Lord provides this in his word. Each morning we get to wake and behold the, the provision of God that meets our needs and satisfies our soul. Long for the word. Read it. Don't neglect it. It's there. God was teaching his people in the wilderness, and he's teaching us that he is Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. So did Israel pass the test? They, they were supposed to trust God's provision daily. And on the sixth day, they were to gather a portion for two days so that on the seventh day, they could rest. God provided them rest. They didn't have to work on the seventh day, Sabbath. Did they listen? Did they pass the test? No. Israel failed. <laughs> they failed. Exodus 16 and 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning. And regarding keeping the Sabbath, Exodus 16 and 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. They failed. They didn't listen. They didn't believe God would provide, and they didn't think he was enough. Brothers and sisters, the truth is we are just like Israel. We fail just as much, fail more than we care to admit. We don't trust that God is enough, and we don't trust that he will meet our needs, and so we disobey his word going against his commands. They didn't believe he would provide. So you know what God does in his grace and in his mercy? What I wish my teachers would have done? He makes the test fail-proof. He makes it fail-proof. Because those who gathered and kept it for the next day woke up and found that provision spoiled and full of worms. Those who went out on the seventh day, they couldn't gather anything because there was nothing to gather. God made the test fail-proof. The test was to trust him. He made it so that they had to trust him because whatever they kept was not enough. It didn't last. They had to trust God. They had to trust his provision. Brothers and sisters, God may be testing your heart. You're here. Maybe you can't figure out why your plans aren't working or why why the, the, the money you thought you saved was enough and, and you find out that you're still lacking. You know what God does? He desires that we would trust him. Trust his word for today. For today. Stop, stop worrying about tomorrow. 
Ask the Lord, Lord, provide me with what I need for today. Help me to, to trust that you will provide for today and that I will trust your provision for tomorrow. That's what the Lord wants. He wants us to trust him. Will you trust him today? He provides what you need for today. And fresh manna, fresh word awaits you tomorrow. If you would just be obedient, follow his commands, and listen to his word. Let's pray.